We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podbeam, Amazon Music, and wherever you find your podcasts. Today, I have an important thought to share. You have all the answers. It's one of the foundation ideas beneath therapy and why therapists don't tell you what to do. We believe that not only are you the best judge of your path, but deep down you know which fork to take. Therefore, if we give you the answer, not only can it be the wrong one because we're not you, but you're never going to find your way to your answers. I wouldn't be surprised if you're going something like, yeah, sure. If I have all the answers, why have I reached this dark and unhappy place? And how am I going to reach all those answers? Insert the swear word of your choice. What you need is great questions, what I call curious questions. My witness today on The Meaningful Life has a whole book of them. She is Amanda Dybart, and she is the author of You Already Have the Answers, a gratitude diary which is subtitled 365 Questions to Reveal Your Greatest Strengths. She's also an award-winning television and comic book writer. Her best-known series is DC Superhero Girls. She's on the writing team for He-Man and Masters of the Universe on Netflix. Now, six years ago, when you started on this project, would you have believed that you have all the answers? (laughs) Absolutely not. (laughs) Title misleading and all. I. Six years ago, I didn't even know what this would be, much less that that I would end up coming to the realization that we do already have all the answers. So how did it come about then? It was a bit of an experiment at first, as has been true globally. You know, the last few years have been a kind of difficult, tempestuous time for all of us in In 2016, there was in the United States where I live, there was a particularly volatile election going on and everyone was kind of tense. Like the mood in the nation at large was one of intense emotions, animosity, very choosing sides. I I don't know that a lot has changed in the last six years in that front, but it was a, it was a stressful time. And it was, it was November as it is now. And in the United States, that's Thanksgiving, which is a holiday with problematic roots, but also a time where we think about gratitude and family and togetherness. So I was kind of in a headspace where I was thinking about the things that I'm grateful for. And I started wondering if there was a way that I could almost trick people into thinking about the things that actually were positive and good in their own lives, but not in not in the toxic positivity. Everything is fine and we should all be grateful for what we have because somebody else always has it worse. Because while that is often true, I don't find it particularly helpful. I think it's much more real and authentic and and I guess nurturing 
to say, look, life is really hard. We've all gone through extremely difficult things. And many of us are in the middle of extremely difficult things right now. And look at what we've been able to do. Look at what we've survived. Look at the people that we've loved. Look at the people who have shown up for us in incredible ways during those hard times. And isn't that amazing? And and so that's where it kind of came from. And I started asking these questions on Twitter, thinking that nobody would really answer, you know, just kind of what is something kind that a stranger did for you that meant a lot for you? Or who is someone in your life that you really admire? Or what are you proud to have survived? Or even what what are you grateful for? And I thought just a couple people would answer and it would just kind of go into social media void and and just be something that I did for a few days. And instead, what I found very surprising was people started opening up in these tremendously vulnerable ways, talking about loss, talking about illness, about things that they've been through, abuse, neglect, all kinds of deeply emotional things that we don't normally talk about with strangers on the internet or even sometimes our closest friends. And instead of the customary trolls that can happen on social media, what was happening was then someone else would come into the comments and go, oh, that reminds me of when I also went through this, or here's the bereavement support group that got me through my own child's passing, or let me slide into your DMs and help you with that. Or yes, your story is just like my story. And it started kind of building this community of really positive, affirming storytelling. And then when I stopped, you know, anytime I would stop, people go, oh, Amanda, where are your questions? I missed your questions. And so I started just you know, I've been doing it for six years now, almost daily. And they started going viral. I started getting like hundreds of thousands of responses. And I try to, I still try to respond to every single one, even if it's just to like it so that they know that it's been seen and read, because I think it's really important to, if you're putting yourself out there in a vulnerable way to feel seen and heard. So that's still very important to me to do. And as it kept going on over the years, people would say, oh, this should be a book. It's so inspiring you know, reading all these stories, it would be amazing for people to have when they're feeling down, but I didn't feel comfortable taking other people's stories that they were putting out there and making that a a book of mine. It didn't feel like my story to tell. And so what I ultimately came to was having the questions in a journal for anyone to be able to answer and then inserting a few because I never, in my threads, I don't usually share my own answers to the stories because I don't want to make it about me and I don't want to take it over. It's a it's a time and place for other people to share. But in the book, I've divided 12 months, so 12 kind of themes for each chapter. And at the beginning of each chapter, I share a little bit of maybe one or two of my own answers so that you get the feeling of community that kind of happened organically online, or at least that's the hope. Now, I think people listening to this program, when they hear somebody talking about gratitude diaries and asking curious questions, I think they possibly might imagine that the author of this book would be sort of floating around on a cloud of incense um, (laughs) and maybe with a lotus behind her ears. And in fact, you're a very different kind of person that's come from a very different kind of place. So, I mean, I think that to understand the journey, we have to go right back to the beginning because you were brought up in a Southern religious conservative household where you were given the message, you don't have the answers. And if you must exist, it's better to apologize. Tell me about that. Yes. 
culturally, I was raised in a very religious environment where children are best seen and not heard, women best seen and not heard. So this idea that, you know, my existence might be a temptation for men. And so I need to make myself small. And just just in general, that my job was to keep the adults in my life happy, to kind of try to be perfect, which is unattainable and produces a lot of anxiety, but to be quiet, to not have any of my own opinions, but to just be obedient. And so for me, it was a very long journey, even realizing that I was allowed to have my own interests outside of the ones that had been chosen for me. And I don't think you're a quiet conservative person now, are you? <laughs> I I am not. I'm I'm quite different than the way I was raised, I'm sure much to their chagrin. <laughs> so you write about in the book about helping the reader discover who you are at your core. Now, to understand you, it seems that there's a handful of events that help us illuminate this core. So let's just go through a couple of those before we go on to the questions. Your mother died when you were just 14 years old. I mean, that is extraordinary. So how has that impacted on your core? Quite intensely, of course. She was ill for a couple of years before that, and I am the eldest of three girls, So as happens often with eldest daughters, I was the person who was relied upon for a lot of the caretaking. Also, we were not an affluent family. We were were quite poor, so there wasn't money for additional caretakers or support. So my job became, you know, I was administering medication to my mother, changing her bedpans, caring for her when she was bedridden, but also caring for my two younger sisters and making sure that dinner was on the table and that their homework was done and that the house was clean. So I had a great deal of responsibility while I was also dealing with the grief of watching my mother slowly die and then and then her death. And that, I mean, I still have, I'm still very much a, a caretaker, which is something that came from it that I that I like in many ways. It's also something I have to be careful with because it's something that can become too much a part of me if I let it. I I can tend to over care for other people and neglect my own self-care as happens with many of us. And that part of things I I like about myself for the most part. I also feel a lot of or felt a lot of hyper responsibility for everyone and everything. And that's something that I've kind of tried to grapple with. And then there's just the loss of a parent at a young age. That's something I've learned. I'm 40 now. And I've found that the grief changes and grows along with me, that there was the grief of the little girl who lost her mother. Then there was the grief when I became a mother myself. There was the grief. Mm. My mother was 35 when she passed. That must have been a very tough birthday. It was. It was hard to reach the age that she was and kind of, um, I think I had like this feeling of like doom that entire year, like something would happen and I would also pass at, at 35. And then again, every year after has been an interesting kind of fairly new experience of realizing that I'm the older, wiser woman now. Like I'm the one with more age on my face. I'm the one with more life experience. There's not the, what would mom have done in this situation? Because now I'm the woman who's who's lived more. And that is a very strange thing to grapple with as well. 
What is really shocking is that this was not the only loss you were dealing with as a, as a teenager, because at 17, you were separated from your younger sisters that you've been talking about, who are in fact your half-sisters, and I assume you were separated from them and by your stepfather. Yes. So your family sort of disappeared. Completely. I never knew my biological father. I had been raised by my stepfather since I was two. You know, so I lost my mother. I lost my sisters. I lost my stepfather and his family. It was a lot. It, it was a lot of, I had my mother's parents, my grandparents, fortunately, who I'm still quite close with and they're both still living. But it was, it was a tremendous amount of loss. Losing my sisters was extremely traumatic for me. Um, especially so close to having lost our mother. And yeah, it was it was a very unpleasant time. My teen years were not not lovely. So here is a curious question for you. What did you learn about yourself in that period? That's a great question. I learned a lot about my own strength. I learned some things that I liked. I there was so much out of my control that I dove into schoolwork because I saw that as a potential way out of of a rather miserable life and also as just something I could control. So I managed to work really hard in school and to graduate from high school early and work a job so I could save up to attend university and get a scholarship. And those things, looking back on now, I'm really, I'm really proud of that girl who who took something very traumatic and was dealing with a lot and decided that no one else was going to to help her or take care of her. So she needed to take care of herself and that I did it, that, that I can take care of myself, that I can get through a hard time, that I am good in a crisis. Those are the things that I've learned about myself that I'm, that I'm very happy to have learned. And I think you also, I don't know whether you already had it, but you had a great sense of humor because, uh, <laughs> At 20, you got a call and went on a road trip with a mixtape called Kidnapping a Teenager. <laughs> well, you know, it's important to have, to have the a good mixtape. <laughs> you you yes. were a screenwriter even in those early days. <laughs> for sure, for sure. So why? Why were you kidnapping a teenager? <laughs> Well, as as we all do, I, I I came to be very proud of kidnapping a teenager. I when I was in school in university, I got well my freshman year of college. I on spring break, I went with my roommate on a road trip back down to Florida. I was living in North Carolina at the time, um, so it was about four states away, a twelve hour drive. For those of you in the UK who maybe don't do twelve hour drives. <laughs> as we do in the United States. <laughs> Only if you get stuck on the M25. <laughs> but we took a drive down and we kind of did a stakeout where we waited for my sisters to get home from school. At that point, I hadn't seen them in several years and hadn't been allowed any communication. And we saw them and I called them over and I gave them a scarf that had belonged to our mother and some money and my phone number. So they would have a way to communicate with me if they ever needed me. And that was about, we we went for a short walk. We got to talk for about 30 minutes. And that was as much as we had spoken in several years. Then I left. And two years later, one of my sisters, the, the middle sister, Jessica, called me and she had run away from home. It was not a good home environment for any of us. I lived in it for a while before 
I was kicked out, then my sisters were in it, but it was, it was a very unhealthy, very abusive environment. And she had run away and was staying with different friends and wanted to know if she could come live with me. And I said, sure. And then I was like, I'm pretty sure because I'm an adult, if I take you across state lines, that will be considered kidnapping. But if you can get yourself, she was in Florida. I was like, this is a technicality. I'm no legal expert. 20 year old me was definitely not a legal expert, but my logic was get yourself to Georgia. You get yourself across that first state line. And then I will just be picking you up when you have run away to Georgia with nowhere to go. And then I will take you home with me to North Carolina. So her boyfriend drove her to Georgia and my girlfriend at the time and I, and my girlfriend made the mixtape to kidnap a teenager. We put it in my car. We drove Picked up Jessica, put all her stuff in my trunk, drove back. I took my Spanish final exam for the semester that morning. And then Jessica was living with me and my my friends really came together and managed to secure like a bed and some furniture and different things so that I could quickly kind of put her up in my in my apartment. So I think that that gives a sense of where you're coming from. It's not just a place of uh, pure yoga retreat sort of kind of stuff. This is this is grounded in the real world right. and actually surviving in the real world at whatever can throw at you. And even then, you have all the answers. I think so. So I'm going to pull out one of the questions of, from your book to ask you, and then I've chosen one that I will answer. So to give people a, a sense of what's in the book. So how have you grown as a person in the last year, Amanda? Oh, that's a, that's a, that's a good question. <laughs> and and it's one of your questions as well. <laughs> I know that's one of the same. I'm like, oh, what a great question. Mm, that sounds a little conceited. <laughs> if I do say so myself. <laughs> but how I have grown in the past year, I, this has been an interesting year for me. I just turned 40 a couple of weeks ago. And I am feeling a real sense of self in a new way. I have found that I'm feeling a little less concerned. I still care what other people think about me. I think I always will. But I'm a little more concerned with how I feel about me than I think I ever have been. And I think that's a really good thing. I'm starting to feel more comfortable in my own skin and with making my own choices and that it's it's okay for me to dislike something just because I dislike it or to say no to something because I don't want to do it. I, I tend to over-involve and over-extend myself. And I'm, I'm learning how to step back from that a little bit and to do the things that really do matter to me and really feel meaningful and fulfilling or like good for my family, good for myself, good for my friends and letting go a lot of, of a lot of the other things that just kind of feel like societal noise. And so I'm excited to see, I'm excited to see where that takes me from here. Because in a sense, that's all about answering one of the most crucial questions at 40, which is who am I? And mm -hmm. what are my values as opposed to what are society's values, our mother's or our great grandmother's values or whatever it's, what are my mm -hmm. values? And those are really important questions at 40. I think so. So I chose a question. I'll give you a chance to give me a question from the book later, but I thought just to warm myself up, I would choose my own question from the book because some of them are quite difficult. So what is something about you that other people might find surprising? 
So I don't know if you're going to find this surprising or not, Amanda, but um, I'm 63. Oh, that's shocking. Is it shocking? That's not the surprising thing. The surprising <laughs> thing is, well, you look great. thank you, that I, a couple of weeks ago, got my first ever tattoo. And it's not just a little tattoo. It is a huge chest tattoo that goes right from underneath my collarbone, right down below my sternum. And it's a wolf's face. So uh, it's quite a, a big statement tattoo. And so instead of starting with a little butterfly on my ankle, I went straight in there and got a wolf tattooed across my uh, chest. You've got your mouth open at this precise moment. I do. I love that so much. I love the idea of going big with something. Like if you're going to do it, just do it. Yeah. Go home or go big. Sorry, go big or go home. (laughs) Exactly. And and also the, the commitment, like you knew what you wanted, at least one would assume, because if you're going to do it all the way across your chest, then that's something I would assume is very meaningful and, and personal for you and that you enjoy. Yeah, I have a long, complicated relationship with wolves. I used to have nightmares about them when I was a small child. And it's something about becoming an adult. And I mean, in comparison with you, I'm very fortunate because I lost my mother when I was about 57. And I lost my father last year. So it's just about the first anniversary. And there's something about a wolf being a pack animal that's the message is that the tribe is there to look after you, even if your parents mm. aren't. So it's a reminder when I look in the mirror that, you know, I'm not alone. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if that idea of the tribe rather than the family is something that you've probably thought about as well. Very much so. I love that idea. That's that's quite beautiful. And I'm very sorry about your parents because I think that at any age, that is an incredibly difficult loss, especially when you've lost both. It's a different stage of life that I don't think anyone can understand until it happens. So I am sorry for that. But yes, the tribe is something that resonates with me for sure. So you have a section where you encourage people to look for helpers. Why is Mm -hmm. this important? Well, I think you touched on it a little bit with the tribe versus family. You know, for me, I know in my own life, if it weren't for people around me, sometimes strangers, sometimes friends, I don't know that I could have survived just on my own. This idea of, of lone wolf is, is quite sexy in a film, but is a little bit harder to live in real life. And so I, and I think too that on an individual level, one on one, most people are willing to look out for each other, to help each other. I think sometimes when we get into mass situations, that can go a little sideways more easily. But, you know, if you're alone with someone and they need help, most people will respond. Most people will offer help or comfort in some way, or at least that is something that I've seen to be true in my own life. So here's another question from your book for you. What is something kind a stranger has done for you? This is a question that I that I fortunately have multiple answers to. I'll share the one that I shared in my book, which is when I was young and my mother was first getting sick, but we didn't know that she had cancer yet. So I was probably 10 or 11. Um, and she was just having very intense pain that 
we didn't know what the source was. And because we didn't have health insurance, this is another fun American situation. They would take her to the emergency room sometime, but there wasn't a lot of follow-up or visits to the doctor because we couldn't afford it. And at one point, we had to take my mother to the emergency room when we were going back from a from a family weekend away. And my stepfather took my mother in and my sisters were asleep in the car and I was watching them. So I was just sitting in a hot van in central Florida with the doors open so that we wouldn't get overheated. And I started crying because I didn't know what was wrong with my mom. I was afraid she was going to die. I was alone. And this woman walked out of the hospital to smoke a cigarette, obviously very concerned about whoever she was there visiting in the hospital. But she saw me crying and she called me over and I was distraught enough that I ignored the idea of stranger danger and walked up to this woman who was just smoking a cigarette and kept an eye on on the car where I was watching my sisters and talking to her. And she asked me what was going on. And I told her that I was worried about my mom. And she told me that she was also worried about someone. And then she just sat with me for a little while and was someone who was just with me while I was upset until I calmed down. And then, you know, I finished breathing in her secondhand smoke and she went back into the hospital and I never saw her again. And I don't know her name. And I went back in with my sisters and it was just one of those moments that she probably doesn't even remember, but stood out to me because I was alone and scared and she just offered to be there. And that was all. And I think if we stop and think, we've all got people in our lives who fit into that category. And Mm -hmm. we sort of, we're grateful at the time and then we sort of let it pass by and we don't remember it. So actually being asked that question and writing it down and telling it does feel very powerful to me. I think so. So to give some some more examples of questions, because I'm delving into your book and pulling out questions for you, it feels only fair that you can dive into your book and pull out a question for me. So uh, I'm feeling a bit nervous, but um, what what have you got for me? I have a favourite question. And uh, actually, the one you just asked me is one of my favourites. But I have a favourite question, and it is, what is something you are proud to have survived? Ooh, um, that one is a very easy one to answer. What I'm proud to have survived is the death of my partner when I was 37, I think it was. Yes, 37. And interestingly enough, that also ties in with when you were talking about a helper, I was thinking about that because in this hospital, there was a nurse whose name was Martina, and she became a particular friend to Tom, my partner. And the night he was dying, she'd left a message with with the team that were doing the night duty saying that if I wanted company, that I could say so and they would call her and she would come back into the hospital and sit with me at the very end, which she did. And I actually left more or less as soon as my partner died, but she stayed and did all the necessary things to prepare the body. And not only was that an incredibly beautiful thing to do, but, you know, we've become friends and we've stayed in contact all these years. So I'm also quite proud of um, our friendship, Um, bearing in mind that uh, she only speaks German and my German is a little bit shaky. 
despite living in Germany. Uh, if you live in Berlin, you can easily get by without much German. And so she came to our house last weekend because she was in Berlin for a conference on uh, end-of-life care, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm proud of surviving that. And, you know, when you talk about somebody who was um, a, a helper, that was most definitely going beyond the call of duty. And that was, and in fact, it was probably against the rules as well, but is something I will be eternally grateful for. That's, I'm, I'm so sorry that you went through that. And that is a beautiful, a beautiful and sad beginning to a friendship. But I'm so glad she was there. So there are various other sections, like there's questions on love. We won't mm-hmm. talk about love because I think that's sort of implicit in every one of the questions and mm-hmm. the, every one of the answers we've been dealing with. But this is an interesting one. Where are you from? Why is this an important set of questions? Well, the where are you from section is obviously, you know, there's geographically where we're from. And of course, that affects who we are. But it's more about your upbringing, your people, both your your family of origin and the community that you were in, the people around you that, you know, we're all, I think, very much shaped from the environment that we were in in our early years, both in the ways the things that we continue on and carry on that we loved about the people around us and our upbringings, and also the ways that we're proud to be different, which I think is just as important. Uh, The things in our childhood that we have worked so hard to overcome or to change when we become parents ourselves, or to even just reparent ourselves and learn how how to think about things in a different way. And I think understanding where you came from in the first place is kind of the first step in being more intentional about the way that you do things now. Because for a long time, you weren't, it seems to me, were not very curious about your biological father, but you did actually finally get a picture of him. What was that moment like looking at a picture of your father? You know, that, that, that was fairly recent for me. That was at the end of 2019 was the first time that I'd ever seen him what he looked like. My mother broke up with him before I was born and destroyed all the photos and communication and didn't allow me to have any communication with him or him to have any communication with me. Which, given the background, was sort of half understandable, wasn't it? You better explain the background to us. (laughs) So the background is one of the things maybe that people would be surprised to learn about me is that... That I came into being as the result of a prison break. So my mother was a university student. She answered an ad in her school newspaper for an inmate who was looking for a pen pal. She started writing letters to this man who is in prison and even went to visit him once. And the letters became kind of romantic in nature and they were writing each other kind of these love letters. And then this inmate who, who is my father, he, he escaped from prison. And then instead of getting away and going and doing what I, what I guess one would assume you would do after you escape from prison, which is like go very far away and not get caught again, he went and found my mother and started dating her. And then, you know, he was, eventually recaptured and went back to prison when my mother was, I guess, 
a few months pregnant with me, but I didn't know any of this until I was in my 20s and I started researching things and put it together and found prison records and was like, and then found the prison break records and then, and then realized what happened. But at the time growing up, that part of the story was conveniently left out by my mother. But yes, because of that, I, I was never in any communication with my father or any of his family. And then in 2019, through a series of events, actually, another social media message that I put out that led me down a rabbit hole that led me to Ancestry.com, that led me to some birth records, I found two of my father's sisters who are still living and sent them the very awkward Facebook message. <laughs> I was like, hi, I don't even know if you know I exist or anything about me, but I think I might be your niece which is, you know, just a, a great opening line. <laughs> uh, but eventually they, you know, we talked and they did realize that I, that I was who I said I was. And then one of my aunts sent me some photos of my father, which was the first time I got to see him. And what was it like looking at that photograph? It was really surprising. I, because he passed away when I was, I guess... In my early 20s. I mean, I, I didn't know that at the time either, but so I never got the experience of meeting him or talking to him, but seeing the picture, it was strange to me. And I guess it shouldn't have been, but it was strange to me how much I look like him. I, I look so much like my mother and my mother's side of the family that it had never occurred to me that I would also look a lot like my father and my father's side of the family. So that was the first striking thing was the familiarity of the face that I had never seen. And it was just interesting, you know, you have this like kind of blank image of someone and then to finally have like a real person, it made him, it made him feel more real to me, which was interesting and sad. And how does that change the idea of where you're from? Well, I guess it, in good and bad ways, it kills some of the fantasy. This idea, especially as a, as a young girl who didn't know my father, there were kind of like all these mythic possibilities as opposed to a real person who was a real person who has real family, uh, real good characteristics and bad. Um, so it's, it's kind of grounding in a way to just know where I come from. And then there's also, you know, some medical questions I was able to answer about family history that I'm just appreciative of as for myself and also for my child. So you also talk about trailblazers. These are people you meet through art, literature, or they might be a real person. So here's one that I've pulled out of that section, a person who opened the door for you. Any thoughts of, about that? There's many, both in a, in a personal and a broad sense. I will say that I remember quite vividly when I was a young teenager and Ellen DeGeneres came out publicly on television as a lesbian. And at the time, I wasn't even sure or aware of, of my own orientation. I had been raised in a community where that was not presented as an option. It was definitely a sin and something that was talked about in a very negative light. And I saw this woman being open and honest about who she was, who had everything to lose and, and for a while did lose quite a lot. And, but also somebody that I had seen everyone around me like and enjoy and had watched them enjoy her television show and enjoy her in films and just kind of 
having this real person who wasn't evil or scary or any of the things that uh, that being a lesbian had been presented to me as and realizing that it, it could just be a real person who was a whole person who was dealing with a society that wasn't necessarily ready to accept all of them. And I think in a lot of ways, it was the first time I started thinking about the potential for myself to just be a fully integrated person and, and go on. And, you know, I have, I am a woman who is a lesbian who works in entertainment. And I think that Ellen and people like her who came before me did make it in many ways easier for me to be myself. I mean, it's changed so much just since I moved to Los Angeles in my early twenties and wasn't sure at the time I was an actress and I wasn't sure whether to, to be out or not. And it was something I grappled with for many years. And now I feel so fortunate that I am just out and who I am. And it is okay for me to be a married woman and a mother and have a career. And I think that without people like Ellen, who bravely went first, I wouldn't be so lucky. It's a beautiful question and a beautiful answer. And there's lots more questions like that in the book. And if you'd like a chance to win a copy of the book, stay tuned back in a moment. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. Now, Chronicle Books can provide two copies of You Already Have the Answers for a giveaway for us. Due to the cost of posting, the competition is only open to residents of the US or the UK. The closing date is Thursday the 15th of December and we'll notify the winners on the next day and we'll ask for your address then. So the competition question is, and it's another curious question, tell us. What have you learned and put into action from The Meaningful Life? So what have you learned and put into action from The Meaningful Life? So here's how to enter. Go to my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcasts. Scroll down until you get to get involved. And there's a box there. Actually, by the way, while you're there, sign up for the newsletter. It's full of interesting articles like uh, minor irritations that can ruin your marriage and how to guard against them. So I think you'll find that interesting. Leave your email address and your answer to the question. And Amanda's going to give it to us again. The question is, what have you learned and put into action from The Meaningful Life? Great. And also, while you're there, you might like to submit us a question for me to discuss with my witnesses on The Meaningful Life. And this is one that's been sent in by a guy. Lots of people will be thinking in terms of a fresh start, a reset, resolutions to help change life for the better. New Year always feels like a gift in terms of an opportunity for a refresh and a change in focus. How can I leverage on that? How can I use the New Year opportunity as a fillip to change for the better, to work towards a more conscious and meaningful life? What key things do I need to look at on terms of getting out of old familiar patterns to grow, to develop and to be happier and to be a better husband, brother, son, friend and so on? 
I know the show addresses these issues in one way or another through all the episodes to date, but New Year does seem to present an opportunity to start again. This idea struck me this morning during some journaling, and I thought of the podcast in terms of inspiration, but I couldn't find one that matched this issue on the show to date. So, as we're heading into the new year, Amanda, any thoughts on how to leverage this forthcoming time of the year into something that's going to be meaningful for the next year? Absolutely. I'm a big proponent of small things being big things. I think that uh, something that can easily happen to us when we're thinking about the new year is we get so broad and so grand, and I think it's very good to have broad, grand goals, but we can set ourselves up kind of for failure if you're going to be, you know, if I'm going to be the best mother, the best wife, the best friend, the most fit person, I'm going to write 15 books. It can be a little over ambitious. I, I'm thinking like the tidiest desk because um, my desk is just a nightmare. <laughs> yes, the tidiest desk. That's, that's that's, I need that one as well. But I think that what we can do is look at the things that we really want and then think about one small change that we can put into action right away. So if I want to be a better mother, then I can think about, okay, what's a special thing that I could set aside to do with my daughter every week that gives us time for connection? You know, whether it's just we're going to go on a walk and she gets to decide where we're walking and I'll follow her lead and whatever she talks about is what I engage in. And it's just time that we can focus together. And if I can say, yes, I can make sure that I can do that, you know, once a day, once a week, something manageable, that those little things then add up to, and then suddenly you are a better parent. Or, you know, I will make the commitment to go on a date with my spouse once a week at this special time. And it doesn't necessarily have to be elaborate or expensive, but it has to be time that we're focusing on one another. So I think that figuring out what the end result you want is, and then finding something very small that is manageable because life gets busy and complicated and hard and we have the best of intentions and it blows up. I also have a friend who every year picks a word that she wants to kind of be her meditation for the year. And she gets a little bracelet that has the word on it and wears it to remind herself. So if it's something like she wants to practice more gratitude in a year, she'll get a bracelet that says grateful so that when she looks down, she can kind of remind herself that that's the mindset that she's trying to be in. But I, I still do think that like small tangible things are, are easier to, to achieve and then snowball into bigger results. I do love the idea about the one word to meditate on. Have you got any other examples that she did for the year beyond gratitude? I'm trying to think of other things that she's done. I'm not sure. I've been thinking about trying to incorporate that as well because I really like, I like the idea of just a one word meditation. And I also like the idea of then also giving yourself a little present that helps remind you. (laughs) So I think, you know, it could, be things like for me, I think, for example, maybe a word like curious or a little phrase like ask questions or something, you know, to remind ourselves that we don't have to just like jump into action, that we can step back, that we can ask questions, that we can make sure we're aware, that we're being more mindful of listening to other people. I think I think there's a lot of single words that we could use to remind ourselves of our priorities, you know, if and even 
even maybe a word that does remind you to keep your priorities in check. You know, if you do want more time with your family, then maybe that's your word. Or if you are really focused on something career oriented, maybe you find a word that that helps you achieve those goals. And almost to sort of try and navigate using that through the rest of the year. So, for example, if you're trying to, you know, somebody asks you, do you want to do this? And you've actually got a way of actually checking on it. So actually, Mm -hmm. if your key idea is gratitude, you know, are you going to feel grateful at um, this? You know, is it going to be, for example, going somewhere beautiful where you're going to be grateful for nature? Are you going to be grateful Mm -hmm. for the idea of your friend for spending time with them? Or actually, is it not going to raise any kind of gratitude? It's going to be a bit of a chore. You don't really Mm -hmm. want to do it. And it's, I don't know, it's in the middle of the city and uh, you're not a city person, you've actually got something to test it by. So sort of developing that idea, not just meditating on it, but sort of trying to use it as a a navigation tool for the year so that um, you've got something to actually check, you know, am I going to do this project? If it's going to, let's say your project is meaning, what is it that gives you meaning? And if it's connection, say, let's let's use that as an example, you know, am I going to feel more connected? Am I going to feel more connected to my friend? Am I going to feel more connected to nature? Am I going to feel more connected to myself doing this? And actually, if it's just going to be cold, wet and nasty, the answer is probably <laughs> not. And you've sort of got an answer to it. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think it could be quite helpful. I just remembered when you were saying that one of her others was truth once. Oh, that's a good, a great one mm-hmm. to try and live by. Mm-hmm. And how how successful is she with these out of interest? <laughs> you know, I've never asked her, <laughs> but I just, I love the idea. So I, I think it's something that I might incorporate myself this year. Maybe truth if I'm feeling bold. It could be a little bit of a dangerous one, to be honest. <laughs> right? Good for a few years down the road. I I somehow think that your wife might not be very keen on truth as the. (laughs) Maybe pair it with kindness. (laughs) (laughs) Oh dear. So, what have you learned, do you think, from actually putting 365 days worth of questions together? I've learned very interestingly that. We really do have a lot of stories. We really do have a lot of life lessons that we've already learned and, and things that we know. Because when I was approaching it, I mean, I knew because I'd been doing this for six years that, that coming up with questions wouldn't be that difficult for me because it's something that I've been, I've been honing and practicing and doing for a long time. But still, you think about 365 questions. And uh, there was a worry that maybe it would get repetitive, that maybe, you know, the, an- the kind of answers that it would produce would feel repetitive. And then what I, what I learned in really delving into it is that they're not, and even answers that are similar or questions that are similar on different days and a different headspace with different things going on in your life. And I'm, I'm sure that you understand this from a therapist side of things that the answers can be quite different even from day to day, from hour to hour. And I think that's what I've really learned is like, there's so much within us that we have to share, even with ourselves, that there is to to learn. And that's been kind of the lovely part of this. 
you have all the answers already. So I've got one big question to ask you as a witness on The Meaningful Life. What makes your life meaningful? Well, I have the personal answer and then I have the broad answer. And my my personal answer for me is is motherhood. I very much am a person who always wanted to be a mother and I feel is meant to be a mother. I my relationship with my daughter and getting to watch her grow and develop and become her own person and discovering the world through her eyes brings my life joy and meaning in a way that I didn't know was possible before becoming a mother. It's my favorite thing in the world. (laughs) And then my broader answer that defines all of my life and makes it worth living is, is connection. I think connecting with other people and with ourselves is what gets us out of bed, or at least what gets me out of bed every day, is is really the meaning of life, in my opinion. Well, this conversation could continue forever because uh, there are so many questions to ask. And uh, unfortunately, this is where we have to leave it for most people. But if you are a supporter of The Meaningful Life, you get the bonus material. And uh, we're going to be talking about how to make a leap of faith. We've got some very good questions that will help you with that. If you want to hear that bonus material, you can subscribe directly via Apple or Spotify. We're also available on Amazon Music. If you want to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life, here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.